Willkommen, meine Damen und Herren, to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. Now, that's everything from a 20th to a 100th anniversary. This is your faithful host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse film discussion group that meets weekly on Zoom. Well, we've reached the fourth month of the year already, but we've also reached the 90th birthday of a classic of world cinema that's been hailed as an important forerunner of film noir, the police procedural movie, and the serial killer film. It's M, the German masterwork directed by Fritz Lang and starring Peter Lorre, which was originally released May 11, 1931. And for this installment, I'm going to be joined by a terrific guest. It's Jan Christopher Horak, former director of the UCLA Film and Television Archive, past curator for the George Eastman Museum and the Munich Film Museum, previous director of archives and collections for Universal Studios, longtime film professor and scholar, and overall expert in German cinema. Chris was actually responsible for a restoration of M back in the 1990s and has a lot of personal and professional history with this picture, so I'm really delighted to welcome him to our show for this episode. Chris and I will examine why M is worth celebrating all these years later, its impact and legacy, what we can learn from the film today, how it has stood the test of time, and much more. Prior to bringing out this month's guest, why don't we get some context on M and when, where, how, and why it was made, a la Wikipedia. So, M is a 1931 German thriller film directed by Fritz Lang and starring Peter Lorre in his breakthrough role as Hans Beckert, a serial killer of children. An early example of a procedural drama, the film centers on the manhunt for Lorre's character, conducted by both the police and the criminal underworld. The film's screenplay was written by Lang and his wife, Thea von Harbo, and was the director's first sound film. It features many cinematic innovations, including the use of long, fluid tracking shots and a musical leitmotif in the form of In the Hall of the Mountain King, whistled by Lorre's character. Now considered a timeless classic, the film was deemed by Lang to be his magnum opus. Lang considered M to be his favorite of his own films because of the social criticism in the movie. In 1937, he told a reporter that he made M to, quote, warn mothers about neglecting children, unquote. It is widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and an indispensable influence on modern crime and thriller fiction. So here's the backstory. Long placed an advertisement in a newspaper in 1930 stating that his next movie would be called Murderer Among Us and that it was to depict a child murderer. He immediately began receiving threatening letters in the mail, however, and was also denied a studio space to shoot the film at the Stocken Studios. When Long confronted the head of Stocken Studios to find out why he was being denied access, the studio head admitted that he was a member of the Nazi party and that the party suspected that this film was meant to depict picked the Nazis negatively. This assumption was based entirely on the film's original title, but the Nazi party relented when Lang told them the plot. M was eventually shot in six weeks at a studio just outside Berlin. Other titles were given to the movie before M was chosen, such as A City Searches for a Murderer and Your Murderer Looks at You. While researching for the picture, Long spent eight days inside a mental institution in Germany and met several child murderers personally, including the infamous Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf, whose notorious crimes took place in the 1920s. Long used several real criminals as extras in the film, and eventually 25 cast members were actually arrested during the film's shooting. Peter Lorre was cast in the lead role of Hans Beckert, acting for the film during the day and appearing on stage in a theater production at night. In M, Long does not show any acts of violence or deaths of children on screen and later said that by only suggesting violence, he forced each individual member of the audience to, quote, create the gruesome details of the murder according to his personal imagination, unquote. M has been said by various critics and reviewers to be based on serial killer Peter Curtin, 
but Long denied that he drew from this case. In an interview in 1963, Long said, quote, at the time I decided to use the subject matter of M, there were many serial killers terrorizing Germany, unquote. M premiered in Berlin on May 11, 1931, in a version lasting 117 minutes. The film was later released in the United States in April 1933. After playing in German with English subtitles for two weeks, however, it was pulled from theaters and replaced by an English language version. Laurie was one of the few cast members to reprise his role in the film. As with many other early talkies from the years 1930 to 1931, M was partially reshot with actors, including Laurie, performing dialogue in other languages for foreign markets after the German original was completed, apparently without Long's involvement. An English language version was filmed and released in 1932 from an edited script with Laurie speaking his own words, which turned out to be his first English part. An edited French version was also released, but despite the fact that Laurie spoke French, his speaking parts were dubbed. A Hollywood remake of the same name was released in 1951, shifting the action from Berlin to Los Angeles. The original negative of M is preserved at the Federal Film Archive in a 96-minute version. In 1960, an edited 98-minute version was released. The film has been restored several times over the years, with Janus Films releasing the 109-minute version as part of its Criterion collection. A complete print of the English version and selected scenes from the French version were included in the 2010 Criterion Collection releases of the film. M has appeared on multiple lists as one of the greatest movies ever made. It was voted the best German film of all time in a 1994 poll of film journalists, film critics, filmmakers, and cineasts. M was included in Empire Magazine's 100 Best Films of World Cinema in 2010. And in 2018, it was voted the 13th greatest foreign language film of all time in the BBC's poll of 209 critics across 43 countries. Currently, M holds a perfect 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, earning an outstanding 9.20 out of 10 average rating. All right, at this time, let's turn our attention briefly to a re-release trailer of M issued by the British Film Institute a few years ago. Now, this includes snippets of dialogue and sound effects from the original film, as well as haunting new music added for effect. Unless you speak German, you're not going to understand what the characters are saying, of course, but this two-minute trailer can at least give you a taste of what the original film sounds like, and it sets the proper creepy tone. So let's give it an earful. Du hast dabei einen schönen Ball. And on with the show. Before I present my guest, let's get a prelim out of the way real quick. Chris and I are going to be inspecting M in finer point film forensic detail that will result in spoiler speak. Make no mistake. Therefore, if you're new to M, you want to experience the story fresh, go ahead, watch the movie, and rejoin us post-haste at this playback point. 
Everyone been properly amified then? Here we go. It's my pleasure to introduce former director of the UCLA Film and Television Archive, previous curator for the George Eastman Museum and the Munich Film Museum, past director of archives and collections for Universal Studios, longtime film professor and scholar, specialist in German cinema, particularly German exile cinema, and author of 12 books and 300 articles on the cinema, Jan Christopher Horak. Chris, welcome to Cineversary. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what a movie to talk about. One of my all-time favorite foreign films, M, directed by Fritz Lang, 1931. I have to ask you first, before we kind of uh, formally get into the Q&A, in your roles as archivist, curator, or scholar, do you have any interesting personal stories about M you'd like to briefly share? M has certainly always been a favorite film of mine, and I I do think it is uh, not just one of the greatest German films ever made, but maybe one of the greatest films of all time, because it was made in the very early 30s when sound technology was not that well developed. And you look at American films from that time period, and, and a lot of them are really quite static and stilted because the camera was in this wooden box. And especially the Americans felt that, you know, they had to record a lot of dialogue and stuff like that. So they were very static, whereas Lang from very, the very beginning shot a good portion of his film silent and then added sound effects. And it's, it's relatively dialogue sparse as far as films are concerned, but that allowed him to create much more action and, and a really dense narrative. And for those reasons, I think it's a, an incredibly interesting film. And you were involved in a restoration of this film, right? In 1996, I think you said? Yes, that's true. When I was uh, director of the Munich Film Museum, uh, 1995 was, of course, 100 years of cinema. And so in uh, connection with that, the, the, the European Union funded restorations of important European films uh, through what was called the Project Lumiere. And so we received funding from the European Union to preserve a number of films, including M. M at the time uh, was in pretty bad shape. There were most of the prints that were around were really beat up. They were short. Okay. The image quality itself was not very good. So mm-hmm. um, working with the, the rights holder, which was a Swiss company, and with the Cineteca Bologna uh, in Italy, which has uh, one of the most important preservation labs in, in the world, uh, we spent about a year uh, finding, uh, first of all, going to back to what was left of the original negative at the, at the Federal German Film Archives and finding prints from a number of other countries. And we put together then a new analog version, uh, making a new negative and new prints, were, uh, which had much better quality than all previous versions. And how many subsequent restorations has this film uh, experienced since then? Since then, of course, we've entered the age of digitality. And so um, a lot of films which had been restored in analog uh, in at the end of the 20th century have been restored again in digital mode uh, in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was in 2007 or 2008, not exactly sure, Criterion worked with the Nederlands Film Museum, or better said, the I Institute, as it's now called in Amsterdam, which is the National Archives of Holland, and the Federal German Archives, uh, along with Criterion, to do a new digital 4K version, which, of course, improved the uh, image quality even more. And that version is about, I think, 109 minutes long. When the film was released, it was and first opened in May of 1931. It, ha- it was about 117 minutes, mm-hmm. but by uh, the late 1990s, 
um, the version that existed was only about 96, 97 minutes long. We added a little of footage to that, and then uh, the Dutch added more to, to get it up to 109 minutes, which is still uh, obviously about eight minutes short of the longest version. But mm -hmm. reviewers at the time actually said the film could use a little cutting to speed things up. So I think the version we now have uh -huh. is, is really uh, very, very good. And we, we're happy to have it because uh, one thing I should tell you is that uh, the period of the early 1930s in film history is a period where there are very big losses in terms of films. Uh, you know, we're still in the nitrate era. The film was uh, decomposed. It burned so that uh, the, especially the number of German films from that period is probably somewhere between only between 70, 75 percent. Wow. Um, and the rest are all gone. So mm. to have a virtually complete version of this masterpiece, I think we're very lucky. Absolutely. And I own the latest iteration on Criterion Collection. Just watched it the last few days again for the umpteenth time yeah. one of my favorite movies and it's just spectacular the image and sound and the, the supplements and the commentary so yes uh, you and everyone else involved in these restorations we owe a, t a tip of our hat to you because it's a miracle that the film as you said has survived uh, in the best surviving elements uh, but yes we can appreciate it today and it, it still looks and sounds fantastic thank you for your efforts in that initiative so I have to ask you, Chris, when and where you recall maybe first seeing M? How old were you? Do you recall uh, where you were? Uh, yes, I, I'm pretty sure I saw M for the first time in the, the early to mid-1970s, mm. uh, so between 73 and 75. I was uh, a graduate student at Boston University mm -hmm. uh, in film school, and uh, we saw the film in a class then. That was, of course, only a, a 16 millimeter copy. Oh, okay. Uh, which I think at the time was being distributed by Janus. But it was still a very impressive film. And of course, we spent a lot of time in, in film class talking about that film. Were you struck by it immediately or did it take a few viewings to kind of sink in? Yes, I was. Uh, I was struck by it because, of course, um, well, I had... Uh, already in high school and later uh, as an undergraduate done work on Bertolt Brecht, the revolutionary theater dramatist in Berlin. And he, uh, and so I knew the name Peter Lorre because Lorre had uh, starred in one of uh, Brecht's early uh, expressionist uh, theater pieces called Man is a Man. And obviously you couldn't see it because it was a theater piece, but okay. I knew Laura's name from, from that time. And so, and I think also uh, Lan is to a certain degree influenced by Brecht in this film. And yeah, right. we can talk about this now or later, but uh, mm -hmm. I do have ideas on that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. If we have time, I'd love to get into that with you. Let's get into this a little deeper here. So why is M worth celebrating 90 years later? Why do you think it still matters? And how has M stood the test of time? Well, it stood the test of time because it is, as far as its narrative structure, quite sophisticated, not just for an early sound film. The point of view of the film uh, switches between basically three different parties. You have one Franz Beckert, played by Peter Lorre, in other words, the child murderer. Mm -hmm. Then you have the what is uh, basically Lang creates in this film what we now call the police procedural. Yes. In other words, very detailed information about how the police conducts an investigation. And it wasn't the first time this was done. The Germans have always been fascinated by this kind of thing. So oh, that's interesting. So there were precedents to this. I, I always credited this in my own mind as this invented the police procedural, but you're saying that there were some predecessors. No, especially in the pre-World War I period. Uh, in the, the, the Germans have always been fanatics for detective films, and, and not only Sherlock Holmes, but the Edgar Wallace uh, mysteries, etc. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of films in uh, the period 13, 14, 15 that, that actually go very much into uh, the weeds in terms of how 
the police and how detectives detect things. That's interesting. There are precedents for that, but yeah. but nevertheless, Lang really goes very much more into that because he has mm-hmm. uh, as his his central character, other than the murder, is Inspector Lohmann. That's right. And Lohmann is based on the um, the former chief of police of Berlin, uh, who is quite famous. Um, and so you see the scientific methods that they're using to find things for, you know, handwriting analysis, mm-hmm. uh, fingerprinting, all of these these things that most people probably didn't know at the time. So that that's one really important aspect of the film. Then the fact that Lang makes a film about a child murder, but we actually never see the murders themselves. That's right. Everything's off screen. He uses all sorts of symbols to to, mm-hmm. to indicate that. I think that's really important to do because in a way mm-hmm. it makes the horror even worse. These children yes. disappearing. So we in the audience are almost put into the place of the people of Berlin worrying moment by moment, when is the next child going to disappear and how and why? And we have no idea because we never see it. Right. I want to stop you one second. You were on that train of thought about three different voices or POVs or different perspectives. So you mentioned, of course, Beckert. You mentioned Lohman. And the third, of course, would be, I guess, the mob, the underworld. Well, I wouldn't call them the mob. I would say because it is it is the criminal organization. It is the it is kind of the the union of criminals who have their their, their own union. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, is an idea that does come from Bertolt Brecht. One of the most popular Brecht of Brecht's uh, plays, which was actually music at the end of the 1920s, was the Three Penny Opera. And in the Three Penny Opera, the, star, the, the lead character is Mackie Messer, or Mac the Knife, and he runs an organization of beggars who spread out over the city, see everything, and can organize things. And so that it is exactly that kind of organization that Lang kind of imagines of, of criminals, including beggars and others, who then are worried because, you know, the police are coming down hard on looking for this child murder. And so they can't have business as usual. So they get involved in finding the child murder so they can get back to business without the police getting involved in it. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, kind of three-part voice of the film, if you will, and Mm -hmm. how he triangulates those those three different perspectives. And that hearkening back to Brecht is fascinating. I never, uh, not being a student of Brecht's work, that really opens my eyes to kind of look a little closer. What else uh, stands out to you as helping M stand the test of time or making it matter? Well, the other thing is just the incredible way that Lang uses sound. Yes. So again, you know, in Hollywood in 1930, 31, there was this notion that everything you hear, you also have to see. Right. Filmmakers didn't think that audiences would understand sound if it was somewhere in the ether Mm -hmm. and not connected to an image directly in front of their eyes. But Lang had a completely different point of view. He was one of the really first ones to to make use of what in film scholarship we call off-screen space. In other words, showing one thing, but hearing sounds otherwise. And he does that in the most sophisticated way with his his kind of light motif for the killer. That's right. Peter Lorre as Beckert, when he's about to, you know, find has a girl in his sights, he starts whistling from Pierre Gint. that little ditty from uh, Hall of the Mountain King. That's right. After he does that a couple of times, Lang is able to just use the music to indicate that the murderer is near without even showing him. Amazing, right. And that kind of thing was really completely new because, of course, at the beginning of sound, none of this had been invented yet. You had to figure it out for yourself, how to mix sound and image and create uh, uh, something that, that is realistic. And that's what he does by having, and also have, you, there are other scenes 
where he uses a lot of sound effects. For example, uh, the kind of the criminal organization traps Laura in this, in, 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 they think he's in this office building and you see all these empty halls and you see these various shots in, but you hear the sounds of people screaming, he's there, he's there, etc. So that kind of thing, again, uses sound in an incredibly sophisticated and creative way that hadn't been done before. Yeah, it creates a world, you know what I mean? It, and it's so interesting because this innovative sound design, you know, from what I've gathered uh, that scholars have written about and so forth, was highly influential on other talking pictures that came in the wake of M. And to your point, Lang didn't employ sound or sound techniques as, you know, quote unquote, a gimmick or a showy technique. I think he truly attempted to create a soundscape that made us believe in this dangerous urban world that the characters exist in. You were talking about how this innovation of using sounds that are sourced from somewhere outside the frame, letting us hear things without always seeing what makes that sound. That was considered groundbreaking at the time. I think of a very small example or very early in the film where the child is about to cross the street, but you hear a honk. And she quickly steps back onto the sidewalk because a car comes into frame and, and it almost hits her. But that honk from off screen, a simple thing that you could take for granted today, that probably would have been, wow, okay. This is a, a, an innovative use of sound for the time, right? Absolutely. That's a perfect example. And the fact, again, that scene, like a lot of other scenes, he could shoot silent mm -hmm. and then add the sound effects afterwards. So, you know, there are a lot of fluid camera movements in the film also. Mm -hmm. Wonderful camera movements which again had to be shot silent because the cam the sound camera had to be in a box. You couldn't move it. So he shoots those silent and adds the sound later and gives the film a fluidity that it otherwise wouldn't have had. Amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that leitmotif kind of technique there. Is this one of the first films to employ a leitmotif, a repeated song or piece of music that's connected with a particular character? You know, I, as a film historian, I'm always careful to, to say this is the first, but it is certainly one of the first to use it. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the first, right. Okay, interesting. I want to quote something by film historians Kristen Thompson and her husband David Boardwell, who wrote that Lang quote, experimented with sound bridges, carrying over the sound, particularly voices from one scene into the next, a technique that would not be commonly used until modern Hollywood cinema, unquote. So we certainly witnessed this technique when the film cross cuts, Chris, between the meeting between the you know police chief and his men and then the meeting with the captains of the underworld. Absolutely. This is, it's not what we call overlapping dialogue. Mm -hmm. And again, this was really revolutionary and, and no one in Hollywood would ever have dared to do something like that where you you have in fact uh, uh, someone in one uh, in one group of uh, the group of the police commissars starts a sentence and the sentence is then ended by a criminal in this other conspiracy. Both, of course, have the same goal to find the child murder and are talking about it. Yes. But those kinds of bridges, allow Lang to draw parallels between the two organizations, between the police on the one hand and the criminals on the other, right. uh, as organizations that are very hierarchical and that also, you know, have very kind of almost scientific methods of doing things. Yeah, so ahead of its time, absolutely. One more point about the sound design, which, I mean, we could, we could go on talking for hours just about the sound design itself, but... Long occasionally uses stark silence, broken suddenly by one or more loud noises to unnerve us and add dramatic tension, I find. And while it would not be plausible that such a populated, noisy city would be so quiet, I think this stylistic choice fits the mood and themes of the movie. What do you, what do you make of that, you know, kind of breaking the stark silences that he does in the movie? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I don't know if Lang uh, read uh, Sergei Eisenstein, but Eisenstein an early essay on sound actually says, silence is also sound. Makes sense. In other words, you can use silence as kind of a dramatic pause. You do not need wall-to-wall -wall talking or wall-to-wall -wall sound, which of course is exactly what Hollywood was still into at that time. I think the movie often plays like a silent movie with sparing use of sound 
that, as we've talked about, creates greater tension and anxiety through its use of what I'll call negative space. Mm-hmm. You know, not only with the sound design, but also with with images. You often see a lot of vacant, absent, you know, uninhabited spaces that were previously occupied, for example. Um, and we can go into a, f- a few examples a little later. But again, negative space to me really kind of delineates this movie from predecessors and from other works of this time, especially on, on uh, American shores, uh, and just in terms of the influence that Long had. We'll talk about influences more again in just a moment. But to finish this thought about you know why the movie still matters, for my take, I think it's particularly interesting as a film made during the transition between silence and talkies. Could, this would have been right in that wheelhouse of making that transition, if you will. We talked about the sound design. We talked about things like negative space, uh, some of the directorial choices. I also think that M has held up remarkably well 90 years later, Chris, because it checks the boxes, at least for me it does, across several possible genres and subgenres. So arguably, it's a horror movie. It's, as you said, a police procedural film. It's a psychological thriller. It's kind of a progenitor to film noir. It's a man-on-the-run chase film. And we can agree it's not a documentary, but Long, from what I read, intended it to be a somewhat realistic document of this era in his country, a time when the Weimar Republic was fertile ground for impending fascism, when Germans were still psychologically recovering from the horrifying traumas of World War One, and when real-life serial killers like Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf, were making headlines. I think you're absolutely right, especially in terms of film noir. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember, and this is an anecdote to, that you've read about too, it's repeated in a lot of different sources, that when Lang was first in pre-production on the film, uh, the, the title was The Murderers Are Among Us. I read that, yeah. They were supposed to film in a, a studio, which was a former airplane hangar, in the northwest of Berlin called Stocken. And the uh, operator of that that studio uh, apparently was a Nazi. And he said, no, because the Nazis and the Nazis were already a big party. You know, they'd won big in the elections in 1930. They weren't in the government yet, but they were very close. They were, you know, already at uh, 30, 35% of of the vote. Mm -hmm. So there is this fear of Nazism that gets transferred in the film. So anyway, Lang, to finish that anecdote, Lang goes to the to the head of the studio and says, well, it's, it's about a child murder. It's not about Adolf Hitler, and it's not about the Nazis. But in point of fact, I think this film, and that ties it very much to film noir also, is really about a society kind of in dissolution. And the conflicts are all under the surface, but you feel them. And the shots you're talking about of oftentimes empty streets and corridors and things like that create a sense of loneliness in the city that ties it for me very much back to, to, to ties it to film noir. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that Fritz Lang emigrated to the United States and made some of the great film noirs of the mid-1940s, Scarlet Street and Woman in the Window. Yes, one of the architects of that movement, no question. It it makes a lot of sense that there's that precursor in this film to film noir. And the other genres you mentioned too, you know, the police procedure. Right. Horror film may be the least, although I think, you know, the connection with, with Peter Lorre, having then starring in horror films when he, when he got to Hollywood later. So, but, uh, but these other genres very much were influenced by what Lung was doing here. Two more points I want to make before we transition to the next question. I think that M particularly matters because it requires active participation from the viewer. M isn't graphic or literal in its depiction of violence. You were talking about how the murders happen off screen, for example. It suggests this horrible violence, but it you know it forces us to imagine the terrible things happening. I think that exonerates the filmmakers and makes us more of a collaborator in the creative process. We have to use our imagination, and uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. But also, I think the the movie still resonates, Chris, because we've been talking at length about the great you know filmmaking techniques, the cleverness that we can continue to appreciate today. And I, one point I want to make on this is. Although we loathe Beckert, I can't speak for you, but I assume the audience really hates this guy because, of course, he's a child serial killer. 
But we are made to relate to Beckert in some way and feel the tension he feels about possibly being caught. I equate that to kind of how Hitchcock manipulates us into worrying, for example, about Norman Bates getting away with covering up a crime in Psycho, if you will. You think about how Beckert is depicted visually as having a duality, often shown reflected in mirrors and windows, suggesting perhaps that you know, he's dominated by his other darker half. So again, just the tip of the hat to Long and, and his company in terms of really making the audience a, an active viewer. Yeah, I think the, this issue of violence is interesting because I, I, I think you're right. You know, Long does, through those mirror shots and, and other close-ups, force you almost into the POV of Beckert. Mm -hmm. And so you, there is this kind of moment of identification that you can't help. And the interesting thing about, you know, not showing the violence is that I think it allows your imagination to take hold. And that's particularly important for me at the end of the film, where the threat of violence is then against Beckert himself, where, He's captured and he's brought, and you worry that they're just going to murder him right there on the spot. And there's that a lot of tension built through through that. Again, because you haven't seen the violence before, but there's always been the threat of violence. Yes. Here the violence is even stronger. And again, because the film is switching between these three points of view, and you're now with the criminal organization in that basement in this kangaroo court Mm -hmm. and so there's this threat of violence is is really personal yes it creates a crisis of conscience for the viewer and also makes the audience culpable if in fact it had been carried out in the murder of beckert himself Mm -hmm. yes well put chris Okay, I want to go and talk a little bit about other ways that M was influential on movies or or popular culture or set trends in any way. Now, we talked at length about the sound design, so we kind of checked that box. But what else stands out here? Do you want to go into a little more depth in terms of its influences on noir? Well, I think much of it was shot in the studio, even though it looks like it's realistic. I mean, and there are scenes Mm -hmm. outside. A lot of things are in the studio. And so, like film noir, you get a lot of light and shadow right and uh, especially the hunt which occurs off at night so that too the the the, the lighting design and the cinematography mm-hmm. is an influence on later films also you know long is in a sense almost making kind of or pretending to make a documentary and this mixing of documentary technique and fictional narrative, again, is something that we see in film noir and other American films, but really not until much later, until the post-World War II period. Yeah. When there are films that are shot like on location in New York and really have a documentary feel to them. Mm -hmm. So that, again, is a precursor that comes from them already. And you also think about like the dark and gritty urban landscape showcasing a dangerous big city full of criminals, the foreboding sense of inescapable doom closing in on the main character, and for that matter, the pessimistic worldview and cynicism about human nature. These are all hallmarks shared with later noir. Absolutely. And of course, was typical for Lang, too, mm-hmm. who was was a pessimist and, you know, some of some said even a sadist in terms of dealing with his actors. So that's very much in keeping with the, the long aesthetic. Now, Chris, you could also make a case that M is one of the earliest examples of the serial killer film. You know, it was arguably preceded by Hitchcock's The Lodger in 1927, but it's kind of a different formula from the typical serial killer film. And then maybe Cabin of Dr. Caligari from 1920 is a kind of serial killer movie. But what about M? Is it setting a new template or or breaking the mold in terms of creating a serial killer template that later movies would follow? Well, I think that uh, you're very right to point out Cabinet of Dr. Caligari as as a progenitor to M in terms of the theme of the serial killer. I would say that whether we're talking about Caligari or M, that topic of the serial killer was still a very difficult and almost taboo subject. I'll bet, yeah. 
you know, I can't think of a, a whole lot of American examples until much, much later, certainly the post-World War II period, where you have a serial killer. In other words, a killer who's not killing people because it's a bank robbery and somebody gets shot or anything like that, but someone who kills only for the sense of killing. Mm -hmm. That kind of psychology was really abhorrent to you know the production code people and all that they so i don't know i don't can't think of any examples until much later right that maybe isn't explored until uh, like you said the mid 40s something like the lodger remake right or something like that you know at least in hollywood but yeah so especially uh, just on the heels a couple of years from uh, i think they captured the uh, the vampire of dusseldorf yeah, well, I think Lang also said it in several interviews, in the late, from the mid-20s uh, through the early 30s, there were uh, actually quite a number of serial killers. Peter Curran for the Dusseldorf uh, child murder is one model, but he named several others. Ironically, there was a film made in the 1950s uh, by Robert Siadmak, another you know colleague of Lang's in Germany, called Nachts von der Teufel kam, at night when the when the devil arrives, which was about a serial killer at work in Nazi Germany in 42-43. Mario Adolf plays the serial killer in that film. But Siadmak ends the film where the Nazis suppress the fact that this person was a serial killer because according to Nazi ideology, there was no crime in Nazi Germany. And so you couldn't have a serial killer on the loose, even though that particular killer apparently murdered close to 100 people. Oh, wow. Amazing. What stands out to you as a moral to the story or, or a message or theme, Chris? Well, I think it's interesting that the police, despite all their scientific methodologies, are not the ones to catch the criminal. Mm -hmm. So it kind of undermines these notions of, of science as, as really a panacea to problems and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the criminals have a better organization. That's why they catch them. But also they're much more unscrupulous than the police. Sure. You have to say that. So that, that's one point. I think that, again, the society that Lang is showing, and you see all these, you know, these dark hovels and bars, and, right. you know, Roger Ebert made this point years and years ago, and I don't really quite agree with it, but he said, in M, Lang shows how much he hates Germany and German society. I don't quite agree with that. I don't think that's really true. But he is certainly showing the underside of the society and, and the danger, you know, what happens when you have mass urbanization and the, pro the kinds of social problems that come with it. Right. You think about, Chris, how that's, a lot of these city dwellers are depicted as kind of ugly, foul, lazy creatures. You know, maybe the filmmakers are offering a social critique of the decadence or the sloth or the corruption, the dysfunctionality of Germany's government and its middle to upper class, who often stand in visual contrast to the poor and the working class in this movie. Those folks are dressed shabbily and, and forced to eke out a hard scrabble existence or cheat the system by thieving and prostituting. So is there a class warfare theme going on here? You know, I don't think there's a class thing going on as much as the fact that Lang uses a lot of ugly people in the film. Yeah. And a lot of really strange types. You know, no one is really uh, heroic looking in the kind of Hollywood style of thing. Right. Even Inspector Lohman. I mean, he's fat. He's always got this ugly cigar hanging out of his mouth. So all of the characters are to almost at the edge of caricature in terms of the way they look. And mm. I would connect that to Lang portraying a society at the end of the Weimar Republic in chaos and in disillusion. And, mm -hmm. and the types remind me a lot of the kind of paintings that George Gross was making in the expressionist paintings of really ugly people and prostitutes and pimps and stuff like that in, in his 1920s paintings and, and things. So Okay, that's interesting. It's an aesthetic that really connects to a lot of art that was going on about the Weimar Republic mm. in the 1920s, early 30s. 
Chris, one of the major themes that I think we can agree to some extent is true justice doesn't posit any easy answers. You ruminate on the fact that we aren't given any judicial resolution by the film's conclusion. Is Beckert put to death? Is he institutionalized? Is he jailed for life? You know, the unresolved denouement, it hints that there is no simple solution to a very complex problem. And whatever happens to the murderer won't bring back the killed children. That's kind of the cry, the impassioned cry from... Reading mothers at the very, very last shot. Right, yeah. It seems like the children are the ones whom society seems to have forgotten about, at least this community. They're like almost an afterthought. And so hence the importance of that surviving mother's line about the need to watch our children. We see plenty of kids at the beginning of the movie, but fewer and fewer as the movie progresses. So her line becomes kind of a statement to me about the need for society to be vigilant and to better ensure safety. Yeah, for me, the the ending, especially with the one grieving mother of, of Elsie saying, you have to watch your children, it's almost kind of a pedagogical note at the end of the film. But it for me, it does seem a little tacked on. Mm. In a sense, for me, the whole narrative is what a little of what Kristen Thompson and David Bordwell actually called overdetermined. Okay. In other words, it's kind of a happy ending if you can talk about it that way, but it's not really justified because yes, they caught the criminal this time but it was more a matter of luck than anything else. And I think Lang seems to be saying in a society that is as dysfunctional as the one I'm showing, things like this are always going to happen. A, and it's said in the film itself that you know catching that kind of opportunistic serial killer is incredibly difficult because there's no predicting when he will strike next. And in a city, especially where the killer is, yes, we think of him as a monster, but he's so ordinary looking, such a middle-class looking person that you would never suspect him of this kind of activity, which is true of a lot of serial killers. The murders are indeed among us, and finding them is virtually impossible. So we have to be aware. But will we be able to prevent it? I think Lang is saying, no, mm-hmm. this is going to happen again, and it's going to happen again after that. Yeah. And that's the pessimism in the film, that this is human nature. These are things that are going to happen. You know, it's going to be very, it never really stop. Mm-hmm. Now, he's the king of dark chocolate, no question there. But I think one message that, that is quite clear to me is that mob rule and a kangaroo court, they're no solution for society's ills. To me, anyway, M appears to be telling us that taking the law into our own hands cannot possibly lead to a fair or justifiable outcome, even though vigilante or expedient justice at the hands of the public, yeah, that would feel temporarily vindicating and cathartic, but I think Lang is is preaching a different message here. I absolutely agree, and I would be a little more precise and say that the criminal organization headed by Gustav Grünkes is the Nazi party, and Grünkes is Adolf Hitler. Wow. In other words, the Nazis are a vigil anti-organization in 1931. Mm-hmm. They are taking the law into their own hands. They are murdering people in the streets. They are abducting people, etc. This is a criminal organization, and I think that is the real anti-Nazi message of this film. It's very, very interesting, especially from a historical perspective. Thanks for adding that. Real quickly here, there's a few other themes I wanted to hit on briefly. We talked about this one, dual or split personalities. You think about Becker, he's personified in human form, and he's also personified by his shadow, which is the first instance we see of him. And Lang's high-angle shots and and his shadowy compositions, uh, to me, they emphasize how the child murderer's shadow seems to permeate and watch over every corner of the city, even possibly from a godlike position above the children and above the adults we see. And Beckert and his shadow, they're rarely on screen throughout the film's runtime. If you count up the total amount of time that Peter Lorre is actually in, in front of the camera, it's not very much. 
But, you know, when his physical character is shown, his face and his body, they're often obscured or hidden. You think about the scene where he writes the letter to the newspaper Mm -hmm. or how he's veiled behind, you know, the vine-filled trellis where he orders the cognac, for instance. So like any good monster movie, they kind of obscure or hide the monster for the first part of it. And then they slowly reveal him more as the movie goes on. So I think that's kind of interesting how later filmmakers do that with their monster movies, too. I'm not saying this is a monster movie like those. But it's just interesting how Long introduces this character and suggests that he has a dual personality or a shadow form. And then you think about like what he tells the kangaroo court. He says, I have to roam the streets endlessly, always sensing that someone's following me. It's me. I'm shadowing myself. It's his shadowy self, Chris, that seems to compel him to prey upon and murder children, which puts his conscience in conflict. And it's this shadow form, his role as a monster in this society, that everyone is hunting for, but which has proved elusive, just as a real shadow is, what is it? It's a trick of the light. You can never touch it or control it. And interestingly, the more the public comes to see him as a flesh and blood person who can be caught and no longer as a mysterious and enigmatic shadow, the monster loses his power. By catching and forcing this pathetic figure of Hans Beckert to stand trial before them, I think Beckert is exposed as the weak and flawed human being that he truly is. Yeah, I I agree. And I think two things are at work here. In terms of the first part of of your discussion about, you know, only slowly revealing his physical characteristics and the point of view shots from his point of view, Mm -hmm. again, forces the audience into the position of the child murderer and forces that kind of identification willingly or not. Yes. So I think that's important. And in terms of the split personality, This is also, we have to remember, is something quite new that, you know, Freud had written his his famous works before World War I, but they only became well known in the popular imagination, certainly in Germany in the 1920s and early 30s. In the United States, it takes much longer than that before Freud becomes uh, really known. And of course, it's Freud who understands and talks about this kind of split personality and there's the consciousness and there's the subconscious mm-hmm. and those ideas are new to film yes if you look at for example american gangster films from this time period they are much they don't talk about individual psychology they talk about sociology in other words you know bad background Mm. poverty etc there are sociological reasons for crime whereas in this case we have someone who in a way and that's something the film really makes a point of at the end is his conscious self is innocent he has a split personality he does not know what the other half of his personality is doing when he is murdering. He has no memory of those things. So in a sense, he is truly insane and therefore not culpable for his actions in the same way. And no film I know of talks about those kinds of psychological issues and creates at least understanding, if not sympathy, for the murderer in that way at this time. Such a great point. I totally agree. And you think about Laurie and how he's able to pull that off, how he's able to make you believe his story. Right. Because again, he could just be telling a story to to escape, you know, death and punishment. But I mean, he really sells it. And I believe it. Absolutely. I mean, he puts his every fiber of his being into that performance, especially in front of the kangaroo court. I think it's a tour de force and, and arguably his greatest performance. And, and you know it because... In the film, Laurie writes a letter to the police and says, please capture me, right? I can't help myself. Right. Yep, exactly. One more theme before we kind of transition here. I wanted to just briefly mention that I think we can agree. I mean, a major kind of message is watching and being watched. You think about the high angle shots and the moving camera that are regularly on display in M. To me, they insinuate that there's no place to hide. The characters are being studied and spied upon and followed, Mm -hmm. perhaps by Beckert, perhaps by his hunters. 
perhaps by a godlike eye in the sky, perhaps by curious audiences watching the movie who rely on Lang and company to give us, I guess, voyeuristic views of the players in this story. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, during the sequence where the camera follows Beckert, and he's now wearing that chalky letter M on his back, he looks startlingly into the camera at us, yeah. implicating the viewer as kind of his stalker or his murderer in the future, if you will. Such an astounding shot where he actually breaks the fourth wall, looks into the camera. For one, that is a theme that this theme of surveillance mm-hmm. and it's, you know, the criminals as well as the police are in the business of surveillance, of control over the city. Yes. That is something that is a obsessive theme with Fritz Lang. I mean, Dr. Mabuse, uh, the gambler, in two parts in the early 20s, Mabuse is, is someone who controls people through visual surveillance. He follows that up with a testament on Dr. Mabuse, and then at the very end of his career in 1961 with The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse, uh-huh. where he then uses the technology of television, and you have banks of television screens that are manipulated by Mabuse. So this issue of surveillance for control is very obsessive, and it certainly plays out in this film too. And and to your second point in terms of, again, you know, these point of view shots puts us into the role of the child murderer. And by that shot of him looking directly into the camera, it is implying that he's looking at his bad self. In other words, his subconscious, the one that is murdering the, the children. And that person is us. Interesting. So fascinating. It just makes me want to watch the movie all over again. It's such a work of genius. This is a birthday celebration, 90th anniversary of M. And I contend, as always every episode, that birthdays are all about getting presents, except that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts, I will contend. So what is M's greatest gift to viewers? One of M's greatest gifts to viewers is Peter Lorre. Absolutely. Peter Lorre, who really established himself with this film, and then, of course, when he comes to the, he's he as a German Jew or German-speaking Jew is forced to flee, ends up in Hollywood, and had really a stellar career as a character actor, and is so present in so many of those the Universal horror films, all the way up through then you know a film like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. He is a presence that audiences recognized. And so I think that is one of the first gifts of the film. I think the second is the way this film is so sophisticated in the way it edits sound and image to create this landscape and soundscape of an urban environment. Mm. Those kinds of techniques from that point on are used over and over by filmmakers. Those are two great gifts. For my take, I agree. Gift number one is Peter Lorre, the gift that keeps on giving, especially if you're a horror or genre fan. But, you know, you consider what he's able to do with his eyeballs alone. <laughs> it's astonishing to me. I've never seen such perfectly circular and obtrusive peepers from a screen thespian. Think of the scene where Beckard stretches his eyelids wide in the mirror immediately springs to mind, right? Another particularly haunting shot is where Lorre is on his knees in front of the angry mob, explaining his compulsion, and then rolls his eyes upwards so that his irises and his pupils, they briefly disappear. And it creates this image of almost like an undead creature to me. It's little moments like that. His his eyes are so expressive. And his face too. I mean, he has a baby face. Yes. This guy who's a mass murderer has this baby face who you think wouldn't hurt a flea, right? Great point. Yeah. I mean, the sweaty, you know, kind of uh, exuberance about him too. So I mean, he totally sells that part. So for me, M's second greatest gift though, and I want to just harken back to what I said before, is the use of negative space throughout the film. So the filmmakers repeatedly show empty, abandoned, or still spaces previously occupied by one or more subjects. And I think that suggests an eerie absence or sudden disappearance of those subjects. 
And prime examples, you think about, you know, the deserted and silent yard where the children in the first scene were previously playing. Yeah. You recall the empty balcony above the yard or the unoccupied dinner table, the vacant staircase, the rooms in the office building devoid of any life after the criminals flee, and that adrift balloon, that, that amazing shot where that child's balloon is separated from the child and it's now tangled in the utility lines before it floats away. Mm-hmm. You recall how the film begins. There's roughly 10 seconds of black silence following the opening credits. I mean, it's kind of astounding. And that immediately sets this visual tone of negative space to me. So Long and company, they express emotional volumes with simple, stark imagery that earns its visual power through vacuity and attrition. There are many other wonderful examples of stylistic brilliance that the filmmakers imbue upon M. But to me, Chris, it's the attention to emptiness that stands out the most. So who's going to be watching and studying or talking about M 90 years from now? We're not going to be here, but yeah, what's your prediction? What kind of a staying power or longevity does this movie have to any degree? Well, I I think that M is firmly a part of the canon of film history. It is a signature film. It's everyone agrees it's a signature film. And because of that, And because of the moment, it is so in its time and yet also so revolutionary in terms of the, its technology and its aesthetic. Mm. So for those reasons, it will continue to be screened as an important classic of cinema of the first half of the 20th century. That's great to hear. I mean, you never know about the future, uh, about the legacy of a movie, even a classic movie, one that's held in high regard. Is it going to be forgotten about or, or, you know, it's going to slip through the cracks? You think that uh, it's got a strong, indefinite future then? Absolutely. And you said it yourself. This is a film you can watch over and over again, and it never gets old. Every time you see it, you see stuff you hadn't seen before. Yeah. Because it is so dense. I mean, when I we were working on the restoration, it just, you know, you, you just, you're watching scenes over and over again, but it holds up. It really holds up. Can't argue. All right, Chris, what are you currently working on? Anything that you're involved in that listeners should check out? Well, I'm, you know, I, uh, I re- retired from UCLA Film and Television Archive, and now I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. So that the teaching is keeping me busy. I do have a semi-monthly blog called Archival Spaces, uh, where I write about archival issues and history and things like that. What's the web address for that? Archivalspaces.com. Fantastic. We will check that out. Anything further? And then, you know, I've got a couple of other smaller projects going right now. Mm -hmm. Any books in the works? Nothing, nothing big. I'm starting to think about a book about another, about a German director with a colleague called Wilhelm Thiele, who made another signature film from 1930 film. In fact, the most popular film in Germany in 1931 in terms of box office Uh film called uh, Three from the Gas Station, a musical, one of the early German Ufa musicals. So that's a project I'm thinking about. We'll see if it pans out. Okay. We will keep our radar up for those developments. And Chris, I want to thank you again for generous use of your time and knowledge You were a fantastic guest for this particular episode, so keep watching those great movies. My pleasure, Eric. You take care. You know, I recall years ago seeing Chris pop up in interviews on the making of featurettes that were included with Universal Studios' classic monster movies on DVD, like Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman, as well as his appearance in the Hedy Lamarr documentary, Bombshell. And I've long admired Chris's expertise and insights on cinema, so I consider myself quite fortunate to have had the opportunity to interview him for Cineversary. Chris, thanks again. Let's transition now to standing ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a book, film, TV program, podcast, website, or other work that I think would be of interest to you, our audience. Here's an upcoming event that brings together both the best and worst elements of classic movies. A virtual table read of Ed Wood's epically atrocious Plan 9 from Outer Space, set for May 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Turner Classic Movies, which will be part of TCM's 12th annual Classic Film Festival. Bob Odenkirk, Lorraine Newman, David Kochner, Bobcat Goldthwait, and Oscar Nunez are among the cast participating in this table read of a script adapted by Dana Gould, 
and it should be an absolute hoot, even if you're not an Ed Wood fan. TCM's festival, which can also be seen on HBO Max, spans May 6th through 9th. Other festival highlights you can count on include a 60th anniversary screening of West Side Story, along with interviews from Rita Marino, George Chakiris, and Russ Tamblin. You've also got interviews with director Barry Levinson, fame's Debbie Allen, an introduction to Bullet from Jacqueline Bissett, and an intro to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from Michael Douglas. There's also the traditional Meet TCM panel discussion, as well as Club TCM you can count on. So clear your calendars now and prepare for a fun start to the next month by tuning into TCM. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Uh, Where does the time go? It's hard to believe we've come to the end of another outing of Cineversary. Looking ahead to our May episode, it's going to be time to pay tribute to the Big Enchilada, the picture ranked number one by the American Film Institute and that tops too many other best-of lists to even mention. It's Orson Welles' groundbreaking Citizen Kane, which marks an 80th birthday next month. Rest assured, I'm working hard behind the scenes to secure possibly several distinguished guests for this special celebration, so count on meeting back with me right here a month from now. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you, as always, to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. Because they're getting better, not older. Danke fürs Zuhören, which means thanks again for listening, folks. Thank you.